Hello, everybody, everywhere. We are wide. We are worldwide. This is Travis Ostermike Radio number 199. One more and it's 200, but we have 199 of these underneath my uh, proverbial belt. Uh, Ostermike Radio is sponsored by Joyce ASAC of ASAC Real Estate. Mark Holmes of Reaper Detailing and Power Washing. Get Reaperfied. And Sean Schubert of Red Seal Martial Arts. There is no losing. And usually on, on, on shows, on podcasts, I have a lot of positivity and uplifting stuff and overcoming obstacles. This is not really one of those at first. Uh, I am pleased to have Sean Quigley of the National Parks of Boston coming on and talk to me about uh, the 54th Massachusetts Regiment Monument that was defaced his involvement uh, with restoring that and, and what happened. Sean, welcome to Oscar Mike Radio. Thanks for having me. Sean, um, looking at this situation, one of the things that really kind of upset me about this is this is not the first time a monument has been defaced or vandalized or outright destroyed in the uh, greater Boston area. There was one, I think, in Dorchester that got uh, damaged earlier this year or last year, and it, it's happened before. But this one was notable because this happened during the protest around the, uh, you know, George Floyd incident and, and Black Lives Matter. And this regiment, it, you know, epitomizes everything that is good about, you know, America and ending slavery. And, and it really kind of compelled me to reach out to you. So thank you for coming on. I just want you to start with, you know, your background as, you know, working for the National Parks of Boston, because you've been doing this for a while, right? Yeah, so um, thanks for having me. Uh, pleasure to be here. I have been working for the National Parks of Boston now for over eight years. Um, I started in May of 2012, so I've been here for a while. Uh, and I have spent most of my time um, focused on the history of Boston's free African-American community that lived on the north slope of Beacon Hill. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, really from the roughly from the American Revolution through the Civil War. Um, and this is uh, that story is really encompassed in the site, um, a national park site, Boston African-American National Historic Site, which is one of three major national parks in downtown Boston. When you started doing this, what did you learn about, um, you know, the African-American experience in Boston during this time? So to be completely honest, when I came to Boston, um, I grew up in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, so about okay. an hour south of the city. Um, and I was always interested in history. Uh, I went to Suffolk University. Oh, wow. And yeah, so again, right in the middle of downtown Boston. And I was very interested in the American Revolution. Um, you know, the history of the founding of the country, Boston's role in that, that always grabbed me um, ever since I was really a little kid coming in and doing the Freedom Trail. And to be completely honest, I didn't really know anything about the history of the North Slope and the community there. Um, but through Suffolk, I was able to get an internship um, with Boston African American National Historic Site. And once I really started to immerse myself in this history, you know, I, I, I couldn't, couldn't turn away. You know, right. it's... Yeah, it's, you know, I think one of the things that Boston, and rightfully so, um, you know, has a reputation as the city really embracing the history of the revolution. 
Um, but the history of Boston, you know, isn't just related specifically to the American Revolution. It really is a city of revolution throughout, you know, um, from 1776 on to the present day. And the North Slope of Beacon Hill community, it's a, it's a social revolution. Um, In what way? In what way? So it's a small community, right? Okay. Um, you look at the 1860 census in Massachusetts, you have roughly 2,200 African-Americans living in the city, and roughly about two-thirds of that is on the north slope of Beacon Hill. So really we're talking from like roughly Mount Vernon Street, which is kind of like the top of Beacon Hill, down right, to right. Cambridge Street at the bottom. So it's pretty compact. So it's a small community, only about one and a half percent of Boston's entire population, but they are instrumental not only in fighting locally in Boston for civil rights, but also nationally in the fight against the institution of slavery. And we talk about this story on our Black Heritage Trail walking tour, which is kind of the more or less, um, along with the Museum of African American History and the African Meeting House, this is kind of the main attraction of, of um, the MPS site. Um, and that tour kicks off at the Shaw Memorial. And what we like to say about the Shaw is it's really kind of a culmination of the efforts of those men and women on the North Slope um, through their decades of activism, pushing locally for, again, as I said, you know, civil rights, pushing to desegregate schools, desegregate railroads and laws that ban interracial marriage. And also simultaneously underground railroad sites, resistance right, to right. the fugitive slave law. And all these things really culminate with the 54th Massachusetts, um, you know, which really couldn't have been formed without that foundation laid by those men and women on that North Slope. So tell me more. The only thing I really learned about the 54th, you know, I knew about the monument in Boston, was from that movie Glory. Uh, that that really kind of, and I, that movie came out like 20 years ago or even longer. I can't remember, but that's where I learned about it. And at first, you couldn't believe it. Then you started reading about it. Like, wow! I mean, uh, Frederick Douglass's, you know, kids signed up and, and listed. It, it's a storied history. So, I mean, tell me more about that because I, I really, you know, was the movie accurate or, or um, did it take some liberty with certain facts? Well, I mean, I think like any one Hollywood movie, there, you know, are going to be a, a few liberties that are taken. But I think what the, the power of that film and why I think it's so important is because of what you just said. You never heard of really the 54th before the movie Glory. You know, that's something that brings it onto kind of a mainstream conscious. People become more aware of it and they're going to read about it and learn more. Um, I think really some, one of, the, one of the major discrepancies that I think that we, we see in the film Glory is, is kind of every, it appears that most of the men, um, the soldiers are kind of more or less portrayed um, as, you know, fugitives, fugitives from enslavement. Um, and that, that really, case, yeah. yeah, that really wasn't the case. Um, it's roughly 80% of the regiment are men who were born free, born in the North. And I think also what's important to note and what's really powerful about the 54th Massachusetts is that it's not just men coming from Boston or from Massachusetts. These men that formed that regiment, they came from all over the Northern United States. When that call went out in, um, you know, late January, early February of 1863, allowing for black men to enlist in the army. So many men tried to sign up and fight. They actually had to turn away roughly a third of the people who really? did so. Yeah. They ended up forming a, another regiment called the 55th Massachusetts. 
Um, so the 54th, you know, it's roughly a thousand seven men strong all over, as I said, from the Northern United States. Um, and you know, with all these volunteers and people signing up, they really kind of were or less the best of the best. Um, but they really had to be. And that's not just because of the hardships that they would face as Union soldiers, but really because of the hardships that they faced because of the color of their skin. There were many laws and hurdles and things put in place that, you know, did not necessarily set these men up for success. Yeah, because even even after that, it wasn't until the middle of the, the night you know, the 1940s and, and, and after that, that there was integration. I mean, the Tuskegee Airmen were not allowed to fly with, you know, white pilots. Uh, there were no um, mixed units like in D-Day, all the drops were made by white troops, but the, the, the black troops were not. So there, there must have been surmountable, insurmountable challenges back then for them to serve. And they, and they serve with pride from what I understand, from what I've read. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you bring up a very valid point. The United States Army remained segregated up until 1948. So we're talking after, obviously, World War II. And, you know, these men have to fight in separate units. Um, they have to be led by white officers. Uh, when they signed up to fight, they were told that they were going to be paid the typical wage of a Union Army soldier, which was $13 a month at the time period. Um, but, yeah, it doesn't sound like a lot of money now. Wow. But, yeah, decent, decent chunk of change in 1863. But, you know, when they received their first paychecks, they're only paid $7. $3 were taken out for their uniforms, which did not happen with white soldiers. And then another $3 were taken out because, according to Congress, these men were actually laborers, not soldiers. So what I think is, yeah, right? What I think is very powerful about these men, too, is the fact that, you know, there obviously is that scene in the movie. There's a very famous scene in the movie, Glory, where they get their first paychecks. And, you know, Denzel Washington is calling for the men to tear up their pay and they rip up their pay sheets. And, and you know, the leader of the 54th, Colonel Robert Goldshaw, played by Matthew Broderick, you know, he gets up and he says, we're not going to get paid. And, you know, maybe that scene didn't happen that dramatically, but it did happen. Oh, really? The men of the 54th Massachusetts refused pay for 18 months. When they fight their most famous battle at the Battle of Fort Wagner, they're not being paid for it. They're boycotting their pay because they want to be recognized for the equal work that they are doing. The governor of Massachusetts at the time, who was instrumental in getting the regiment formed, um, his name was John Albion Andrew. He was a white man. Um, but he offered to kind of offset their pay, saying, we can take it out of the Massachusetts budget. We'll make sure that you're paid equally. And the men said no. They said that they wanted to be recognized by Congress for the work that they were doing. And it eventually did happen. They did receive back wages for their, um, you know, their work or sorry, their service, I should say. Um, but 18 months, it's a year and a half. I mean, these men have families. This is, this is a good, you know, this is a way for them to be sending money back and, and they're not doing it because of those principles, because this is really for them. This is a two fronted war effort because they're not just fighting the South and the rebellion. They're also fighting Northern prejudice and segregation, um, which I think, you know, again, speaks to the character of these men, speaks yeah. to their bravery and speaks to why there is, you know, a monument to them. One of the things that kind of struck me as I kind of dug into this too, is at the time it seemed like in so many ways, you know, Massachusetts gets, uh, you know, a reputation for being a certain way. But even back then, it seemed like in certain areas that because of Frederick Douglass and other people that, you know, a lot of people in Massachusetts and the Boston area had accepted the, these black, you know, people, men and women as, you know, equal Americans. 
And it was like you said that they were trying to, you know, fight against that when they went across the state line to serve along other uh, Union Army units. And it, it must it must have been a daunting back then. Yeah, I mean, the Confederacy issues a proclamation that essentially says if they, you know, fine, if, if there is a black soldier and they are captured, they're not going to be treated as prisoners of war. Um, they're either going to be, you know, sent into slavery or killed. And again, 80% of the regiment is born free. So, you know, never experiencing the institutions of slavery, not saying that, you know, they would not have experienced racism in the North because this is apparent through the, um, you know, civil rights fight that's being taken place by the black community in the North Slope of Beacon Hill. You know, there, there is racism in the North for sure and right, many right. segregation practices, but that's, that's a tall order. And those men, they still went and they fought with the risk of, you know, not only facing again, the hardships of the union soldiers, but that's, that's your freedom. That's your livelihood. That's your life that can literally be taken away again, not because you're serving as a union soldier, but because of the color of your skin. So these, these men truly, you know, they are heroes and they, they deserve that, that monument in bronze right across from the state house. So one of the things I want to ask, um, it is, you know, it's obvious you're white and you're, you're working in this area that, that is really, I mean, it, it's more than just a couple of monuments. It is a true part of the fabric of Boston history from the black community side. What's, it, what's your experience been like being a guide through that and, and dealing with that from a, you know, you're, you're not black. So is it harder for you to be related to? Is it causing kind of questions or, or issues? How's that worked out for you, Sean? You know, I think it's a very fair question. Um, and I think, you know, with that being said, when, when people come up, because the, the Black Heritage Trail tour is, you know, you kind of just show up and there's a ranger there waiting for you. Um, and, you know, I, I think, and rightfully so, we, we do have to come up and maybe not expecting to see me, but, you know, have to really earn that trust. Um, and I think that the way that we can that we do that is by making sure that, you know, we put a lot of time and effort into being factual, yeah. respectful, and letting people know that, you know, this is not, I'm not trying to be a sage on the stage and stand here and tell you how much I know and be like, look at how smart I am. You know, these stories are very inspiring. Um, they are a part of who we are as a nation. And, you know, I do my best to try and let those stories speak for themselves um, and be like, I'm here to present these stories. You know, I want you to get a good experience out of this. Um, and, you know, I think one of the most important things is, you know, being respectful, being aware of the fact that, you know, I am white as I'm telling these stories and also doing your homework doing the research yeah. and making sure that what you say is true and factual and, you know, being honest about things. Um, I, I think that, you know, being up there and, and telling those stories and, you know, having to speak about the evils of slavery and the horrors of slavery and what people would have experienced, you know, this is something that, you know, obviously I can't relate to, but through their words, you know, I can share those with you in those primary source documents to, to try and, you know, help you, people that are visiting understand these stories um, and do, you know, proper justice for them. So you've been doing this for, you know, over eight years. And in a lot of ways, Boston has changed 
in the last decade for sure. You know, with a with a big dig being done and the seaport building out and the demographic changing. Have you seen the approach to your work with the monuments, with the tour, with the guiding change along with it, or, or are people still curious about this, even though you know the city has changed all around, and Beacon Hill has changed itself? Yeah, I mean, I think people are definitely still interested. Um, you know, we've we've seen steady increases in numbers for people that are coming to visit our sites. Um, oh. You know, I mean, I think it. it and, you know, the, the Black Heritage Trail is not as well known or as popular as the Freedom Trail. Um, Faneuil Hall, I think, gets close to 2 million visitors a year or something like that. And, you know, the Black Heritage Trail, um, you know, we, we, with the museum and, and people coming to the Shaw, it's, it's definitely less. Um, so, but I think that it's because these stories are very, very powerful. And because I think that, you know, there are a lot of connections that people can make, you know, really learning from this, this past and these stories and people can make those connections to the present. You know, I mean, one thing that we make very clear is that, you know, while we are in uniform and while we are speaking, you know, I'm not here to present a political opinion. Right. I'm here to present stories. I'm here to allow you to make those connections to those stories from our past. And if you make those connections, then, you know, that's what, that's what we're doing. That's what we're here for. But, you know, I think, especially when, for example, something happens, say, you know, events in Charlottesville, there, I think, are definitely people that become interested in learning more about history. Right. And, you know, with our sites being very focused on social revolutions and social justice, it's a natural space for people to come to kind of learn about the past and, you know, see what how that speaks to them in, in their present moment so people learn from you people are around you and you're around these monuments and these parts of boston history every day so when you know i had a reaction when i heard about the monument being defaced it was very similar to the other reactions i had about other monuments even way before this that got uh, vandalized and destroyed What's it like for you and your colleagues who are around this history every day? And it's your, I mean, after eight years, it's not just a job anymore. It's something that you really believe in to see what happened to that monument. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and I think that's a really good point. You know, being here for eight years, it's, it's definitely something I'm passionate about, I care about. And, you know, I, you never like to see anything like that. Um, him defaced or, or vandalized or, or anything like that. Um, but it has happened in the past, um, you know, specifically to the Shaw, the sword gets stolen all the time. It's, you know, there was an incident when I first started where somebody came and just threw a bunch of yellow paint on it. Um, it can be cleaned. It has been cleaned. Um, and, you know, I think what we do and what we want to do is to make sure that when these things happen, people can use it as a learning opportunity. Learn more about this. Why do we not like when these things are defaced? You know, why is this monument so important? What does this stand for? I think the Shaw Memorial is put up in 1897. That's a year after Plessy versus Ferguson, which um, was a Supreme Court case that legalized, you know, the doctrine of separate but equal and basically legalized segregation in the United States. It's 
constructed three years after the founding of the Daughters of the Confederacy in 1894, the organization that was pretty instrumental in, in you know, the real uptick of um, Confederate markers that you, you know, see a lot being discussed, obviously, today. Um, and this is a monument that's put up in a time period where our collective memory of the Civil War is shifting. And, and you know, I think what this monument stands for, it's, it's a real testament to what the Civil War was about. So it's important as a space of memory, but it also really is a call to action. Um, because, you know, as many people have said, um, it's a reminder that, you know, we need to keep moving forward. Um, I think I have a, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of people that have, that have stood um, and spoken about the monument. And I think a, a really good quote actually is from um, the rededication ceremony in 1997, a uh, hundred years after it had been put oh. up. And uh, one of the keynote speaker, the keynote speaker actually was Colin Powell. Um, and he said that the St. God's Memorial speaks to us of our past, speaks to us of our present, and reminds us of the continuing challenges that we'll face us in the future. When we look at this great memorial, we see soldiers looking to the front, marching solidly and straight ahead on a perpetual campaign for righteousness led by their brave colonel. So let us too follow these heroes. Let us carry on the work to make this God-given beloved country of ours an even more perfect union, a land of liberty and justice for all. And, you know, I think about that quote and the things that he's saying, they really are timeless because you look at that piece and, and that is what I think is the message and what is so important and what people need to take away. You know, when a monument shows up in the news, like the Shaw Memorial, and it's talking about it's been vandalized or it's been defaced, I, I think looking at it and learning and realizing what that monument stands for, that is the power in that public art. It's not just looking at a stagnant, stagnant moment in time. No, and that, that's, that's why I'm very, I don't know about you, but I get an emotional connection. I mean, I can't imagine like if this had happened to uh, the Vietnam uh, Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C. Uh, that would, that, that, those events are still very much etched in the freshness of the mind of the, of the people who serve in the, in the greater, you know, American, you know, culture. So, to me, you know, that movie, the, the stories behind how the, the regiment came to be and now the monument are, have to be, I would think, some ways, you know, part of the conversation. And, and yet that quote is timeless because that's why they wanted to serve. They, they wanted to show that, you know, they were invested in this. And I think it's a lesson for us all in the future. And, and as you work through this, I mean, I got to ask, is the monument for lack of a better term, restored or is it in process? Um, you know, what's the condition of the monument now? Um, yeah, so actually, interestingly enough, so the monument has been cleaned. Um, so we have many partner organizations who are, are working, um, you know, work together to tell the story and also maintain the upkeep of the, the Shaw Memorial. Um, the organization that cleaned it is called the Friends of the Public Gardens. Um, and that is an organization that was that that it does serve as kind of maintaining public spaces like the public gardens, the Boston Common, and also cleaning monuments and you know up general upkeep. Um, but the fencing and the plywood and the things that were actually put around the Shaw um, were put there not because of 
um, protesting, but actually the Shaw Memorial itself, um, for about two years now, there's been a committee that is formed and with a lot of partner organizations, the city of Boston, the Museum of African American History, Friends of Public Gardens, National Park Service. The Shaw is actually about to be removed for a $3 million restoration. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, the structure, the structural integrity, the monument itself is fine, but the structural integrity needs to have a lot of work done. So the monument's actually going to be removed. Um, in, I think the timeline for it is in six, five or six weeks. Um, this, this timeline also with, obviously with COVID has, has definitely changed. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But the monument is going to be removed. The bronze is going to be taken to um, like a, a conservation space. Um, same with the marble. And what they're going to do is they're actually going to make the structure that it sits on much more sound. Um, they're going to put new concrete in, um, waterproof some stuff because there was some water damage. Um, and the goal of that restoration then is um, it should be done by late uh, fall, early winter. And then in 2021, there's going to be a rededication or reunveiling of the, of the monument. Awesome. Um, yeah. To, you know, make sure that kind of, again, looking at that Colin Powell quote and others who have spoken about it to make sure that it lasts for future generations, because it's a space of conversation. Um, it's a space of celebration and it's a space, it is a space of protest. There have been protests and people who have been using that um, as a location due to its prominent, you know, spot right across from the state house. Um, for now over a century. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, when work was work and you'd walk, uh, you know, by the state house and walk right by it and the first couple of times it didn't really click and it's like, oh my God, that's the, that's the monument. It, it really took on a whole different significance for me. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And just curious, is, is there ways that if, if people want to help or support, you know, the work you do and your peers do and, and the national parks of Boston is where they can get involved or, you know, how, how can someone help if they want to help? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think for us, we, we welcome any and all um, people that are interested in this. You know, I think one, one major thing is, you know, for, for those who are interested, read more about it, learn more about this and, and see why it's inspiring. But if you, you know, were interested um, in donations uh, or anything of that nature, you know, we, we point, um, not only to ourselves, but definitely to our partners. Um, you know, the Friends of the Public Gardens, as I said, they're an organization that really is involved in um, cleaning monuments, upkeep of general spaces. Um, and you can find them at their website. I'll, I'll have that link into the uh, show posting, everybody. Great. All right. I will share both those links. Oh, I'll yeah, share great. that link with you. Um, and then also um, our partner, the Museum of African American History. Outstanding. Uh, which owns the historic African meeting house, the oldest black church still standing in the United States today. And wow, it, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, it's on the North Slope of Beacon Hill, and it was the center of that free black community. Um, Check that out. Yeah, once, once everything reopens, it's, it's definitely a space. Once that, everything, you know, so there's a very positive thing happening for the monument. It can still provide... Uh, connection to the past, but also inspiration for the future while educating the present. What's, do you have anything for yourself on the, on the horizon or, or is it really that this has become 
you know, a, a, a life work and passion for you, Sean. Yeah. I mean, you know, if they, if they keep me around, I'd like to stay here. I've, uh, I've really, really enjoyed being able to connect with people from, you know, bringing groups of fourth graders to see the monument and experience the, the black heritage trail to, you know, college students to, to folks, um, you know, coming from all over the world, you know, That's amazing. who, who want to learn about this stuff. So I, you know, I, I really appreciate being able to be a steward of these spaces. Awesome. Awesome. Well, look, I just appreciate your time, um, you know, coming on Oscar Mike radio, you know, as, as a person who served myself, uh, I, I really look at the civil war as a really interesting time in our country. Um, you, you know, there, there's, there's been tons written about it. I don't, I'm not an expert by any means, but, it was just odd to me that, you know, both sides believed strongly what they were going to do and, you know, that the hurdles uh, that regiment faced because they were, it was them and then one other regiment out in like Kansas, I want to say, that was like the, Kansas was the first and Mass was the second, but Mass, it's, it's my understanding, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I, I think it's my understanding that the Massachusetts regiment was actually more active, like uh, really in the front lines and really severe battles and really performed at a very high level uh, and with distinction. So, I mean, that was a lot to be proud of for, for those who served. Yeah. And that Kansas regiment um, was formed before the 54th Massachusetts, um, but it was formed before the, like the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, so basically in like, whenever you say anything is the first of anything, <laughs> you know, there's usually that, that asterisk next to it. Um, but the 54th is officially recruited, um, by the United States government. They are one of the first and, you know, from the civil war, like you said, they are, they are one of the most notable African-American regiments. Um, and I, you know, they're, they're pretty instrumental in, in getting, and I, now I, I believe the number in the last two years of the war, 180,000 African-American men will eventually join the Union Army. Um, and I always tell people when they come and visit on, on tour, you know, I mean, that's like a tenth of the entire Union Army over four years. And black men are only allowed to fight in the last two years of the Civil War. And to put that number really in context, black men make up 10% of the entire Union Army, but only 1% of the North's entire population. Oh, wow. Yeah. Without African-American soldiers, the Union Army does not emerge victorious. Uh, again, I, I didn't think of it in that kind of terms, never had those numbers presenting like that. So it's been very interesting hearing about that. And again, I, I you know, when this happened, I kind of re-engaged and looked it up and, and just appreciate your time coming forward. So, uh, you know, look, this is uh, winding down, but um, is there any final thought you want to leave with us before we, we close? I just want to say thanks in advance for uh, coming on. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And um, so speaking again to the Shaw Restoration, um, there is a committee uh, that is made up of a bunch of different organizations. And the committee is coming together pretty regularly in planning out programs and things to engage in discussions about the 54th, to engage in discussions about the monument and what that monument means to people today. Um, so I can share that information with you. 
but you know they are an organization in a, in a group which you know I am included in that you know I think is doing a great job of making sure that the there is still you know interest and discussions going on about the power of that monument. Absolutely, look to uh, connect and, and definitely when the time comes, uh, you know, learn more and uh, see the the, the monument uh, reopened, if you will. Well, we are closing down to number one ninety nine. Two hundred is next, and um, you know, it, it's just in, in my view, uh, Sean just to close this out. I feel very connected to monuments, even as a kid. You know, seeing certain things like the St. Louis Arch was a really profound effect on me to this one and, and folks you can really walk right by it at the state house and see it and the significance cannot be understated so um i am my guest is sean quigley uh, of the national parks of boston my name is travis oscar mike radio I want to thank you again sean for your time looking forward to uh, talking again and uh, as we say in hawk missile in flight or mission in flight we are out